Hallelujah. Father, this day, I pray through these songs that we have sung, confessing the truths of Scripture, through offering our hearts and our voices as a sacrifice to your name, and with the proclamation of your word today, that the curtain of our human limitations would be peeled back, that we might behold in your revelation, your glory, your majesty, your authority, and your dominion. As we have seen proclaimed in your scriptures, and as we have prayed that you would reveal to us your great glory in this way, according to the book of Jude, we pray today, this morning, that that which stands in the way of beholding your awesome presence, Lord, would be swept aside through the means of grace in this service today. May sins, Lord, that would distract and point our attention elsewhere be repented of as we behold you in your righteousness. May the anxiety that clings to us, Lord, because of lack of faith in your power and sovereignty to intervene in the areas which concern us, may we repent and leave our worries upon the altar of your sovereign hand this day, Lord. May the discouragement and confusion, the limited understanding, the limitations of our own experience, Lord, and the difficulties that we've endured, insufficient, Lord, to deal with them in our own flesh and strength and experience, may we set these aside, these burdens, place them on the, on the shoulders of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and find in Him and in that step of faith a sufficient source of reassurance, of confidence, of joy. Lord, I pray as your word is proclaimed this day that you would move beyond the limitations of myself in proclaiming and those who hear that we might behold you in the proclamation of your truth and that in beholding you that we would stand in awe and in reverence and obedience and worship before you this day. Lord, I pray that for the lost in the hearing of this message that you would compel them to turn from their sins, that you would draw them irresistibly to salvation, that the knowledge of Christ and His holiness would be fearful to them until they turn from their sin and trust His blood to save them. For those in Christ today, may the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry be accomplished in the proclamation of your word and in the assembly of the saints, that we might be reinforced with the resources necessary to walk in a way that is evermore pleasing to our holy God, sanctified each day as we seek to grow to the knowledge and the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of this, may your kingdom grow and your church shine as a light in these days. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This day, and as we mark the second Sunday at the, be, in the beginning of this year, 2023, we turn our attention in our second Sunday of the month back to the great acrostic song in all of history. I submit that would be Psalm 119. Let us continue in this series to be strengthened and reinforced in our faith and calling this year as we behold God's holy word. Today we consider the 15th stanza, Psalmic is the Hebrew letter that corresponds with these eight verses we will consider today. That will be Psalm 119, 113 through 120. Psalmic, and then a subtitle, The Trial of Fire, will be our message today. The aim of this morning's sermon is to equip the hearer with conviction stronger than trial 
even trials unto death, to equip the hearer with convictions stronger than death. Psalmic, the trial of fire. If you have your Bible open, uh, would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today? And let us consider in our hearing the immortal, infallible, powerful Word of God. This is Psalmic, Psalm 119, 113 through 120. Hear now God's holy word. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So just as a reminder and review of the format of Psalm 119, each verse and each stanza in the original language begins with a subsequent Hebrew letter. So stanza 1, Aleph, the first letter in Hebrew, is the letter beginning each of the eight verses. This beautiful symmetry and order and this poetic device continues through the duration of the song and it's present in our stanza as well as Psalmic, the 15th letter Hebrew stanza introduces each of the eight verses. This great acrostic psalm begins with the Hebrew letter psalmic in the original, emphasizing, in our case today, the sufficiency of God's word, even through trials involving a few threats, the double-minded, the wicked, and evildoers. And I'm using the summary, kind of a theme of this passage, a trial by fire. The intensity of the difficulties that we face serve God's purposes, in fact, to strengthen the believer. And we find that in our passage today, as well as to purify a society I would submit, a church and an individual. The psalmist has multiplied references to the Word of God in this section. And if you've taken the highlighter challenge, perhaps you've been counting the synonyms to covenant revelation or the Word of God. And if your account is similar to mine, perhaps you've also noted 121 references to the Lord's Word, the covenant revelation of our God, reinforcing even through this means, this kind of numeric accumulation of all of these synonyms for God's revelation, this, that the Word of God is truly the ultimate source of reassurance regardless of the difficulties of, li of life's journey reinforcing once again through all these means the major theme of Psalm 119, which I, we have been working with, the sufficiency of God's Word. Well, many in our day mark the occasion, sort of customary and cultural, a cultural norm, to mark the occasion of a new year with resolutions to perhaps be more disciplined and prove our life in some way, turn the corner, turn over a new leaf. This is common in this time of our calendar change, as we mark a resolution or a commitment to something new in our lives. Well, this is not a concept foreign to the psalmist. The psalmist, however, takes the occasion of trials to reaffirm his faith and commitment to the Lord. Facing a trial, therefore, he makes resolutions, if you will. He will express, uh, and uh, as he uh, 
marks the occasion of trial to express his commitment to the Lord. He reaffirms his faith and his trust in the Lord and his will expressed in the Holy Scriptures. Or he uses these synonyms, the law, the word, the commandments, the promises, the statutes, the testimonies, and judgments of God. The psalmist is resolved that he will find confidence and reassurance in the Lord and in his will as expressed in his law, his word, his commandments, his promises, his statutes, his testimonies, and his judgments. A good New Year's resolution as well. Verse 119 invokes separation imagery with reference to this term dross. It's interesting, Psalm 119, verse 119 reads, All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. What is dross? We'll cover it in more detail in the course of the message. But suffice it to say, for the moment, this is the impurity that is present in a metal, such as gold or silver. This impurity or this alloy can only be isolated and removed when the trials or uh, when the uh, temperature uh, that refining furnace reaches a certain melting point. This is an analogy and an illustration that the psalmist uses to describe purpose in trials. It would stand to reason then that trials reach a certain intensity for two reasons following this illustration. Not only to expose and remove the dross of double-minded wickedness, for example, but also to test, to temper, and to prove genuine faith. The psalmist thus encourages the singer that despite life's hardships, there is purpose in difficulty. The scriptures go on to declare in books like James, and we've noted this before in our series, that trials serve the purpose to strengthen the faith and the resolve of those who go through them. I recently was reminded of a couple of historical anecdotes, and to illustrate this, I think I will present at least two today. The first, by way of introduction, uh, comes to us by way of recalling the totalitarian regime of Maoist China. So the communist government centralizing their authority, their power and influence, and the vain attempt to reorder the social organization to reach their view of utopia or the ideal scenario within their government. This is nothing new. It's been tried and with especially devastating consequences in the last century. There's an author, Robert J. Lifton, who wrote a work chronicling some of the policies and the schemes that were used to try to conform the people of China to the government's purpose to order everybody on the same page towards their utopian ends, the false promise of socialism. His book was called Reform in the Psychology of Totalism, a study of brainwashing in China. And it goes on to detail in the course of that text, and I came across an extensive portion of this in my listening this week, it goes on to detail the torturous physical and psychological tactics of godless governments seeking to subjugate citizens by any means necessary, including excruciating policies and practices. And as we note this, it's, it also uh, reminds us that within the scriptures is sufficient means to survive conditions even like this. I would go on to suggest that there are brainwashing attempts in our culture today to shake, to shake our own faith 
in a sovereign God and to place it in idols or government instead? Where do we find the resolve? Where do we find the confidence to oppose such totalitarian attempts to overturn our convictions? Well, we find it in the sufficient source of the Word of God. It's inspiring to note, even, even in Lifton's work, that uh, the few who had the strength of soul to remain unbroken by this psychological and physical torture were those who had strong faith. Strong faith in an authority that far surpassed Mao and the Chinese officials, far surpassed their oppressors. Psalm 119 prepares us for trials of any intensity, even the intensity of communist re-education camps as one example in history. And it does so by means of pointing us towards a superior power than any tyrant. And what is that? It is the immortal word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Communist governments rise and fall. Tyrants erect their false idols and then they are destroyed by that stone that gathers mass through history, collapsing in its wake. Every idol, regardless of what it's made of, bronze, silver, or gold, or what have you. No, the law, the word, the, God, uh, uh, the commandments, the promise, the statutes, the testimonies, and the judgments of God stand forever. And if in your heart you are resolved to stand according to these, you too will stand. It's better to be that stone, to be in Christ, and to be part of that momentum as the church of God's movement through history. If you align yourself with any idol in the wake of that stone, you will find on that final day what is truly to be feared, the judgments of God, not his enemies in the meantime. But what gives us this confidence and strength? Well, we must draw deeply from the resources available in the Word of God, the psalmic stanza, for instance, to stand in the trial of fire. With that introduction, let us organize our text according to three main words, if you will. Our heading is surviving fiery trials according to the word of God. And then the psalmist models this in three ways. By his resolution, verses 13 through 15. By his petitions, his prayer requests, verses 116 through 117. And by his profession, that would be his statements of faith, in 118 through 120. Resolution, petition, and profession. I want you to notice just an overview in 113 through 115, a sort of poetic posture that the psalmist takes. In 113 through 115, it's as if he stands between the Lord and his enemies and tells the truth in drawing a distinction between the two. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. The psalmist in his proclamation stands between those who are the Lord's enemies, that is, his detractors, his critics, and his haters. And then he points to the Lord as it were, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. And then he turns to the Lord and his own enemies and says, depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. The middle portion, the petitions, 116 through 117, I see the psalmist bowed. There he was standing and drawing distinctions, pointing one way and then pointing the next. In my mind's eye, I see in the posture in 116 and 117, bowed before the Lord humbly submitting to the source of encouragement to uphold him during this time. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. 
There are times in life where we take a stand and we point to the enemies and we say, no, God's enemies, I will not follow you. And then we proclaim that the Lord is our strength and confidence. And then there are times in life and our, uh, our uh, spiritual disciplines, our commitment before the Lord where we bow and we ask him, oh Lord, uphold me. And we submit to his merciful means to endure. And then the third posture, poetic posture, if you will, is rising to testify because of the Lord's judgments. So the psalmist, having bowed and asked the Lord to help him, now rises, as it were, in verse 118, he proclaims, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. That's a bit of overview to kind of grasp the structure and the poetic beauty of this stanza, I hope. And now let's look at it in a little more detail. First of all, surviving trials according to the Word of God. The psalmist models for us biblical resolutions. 113 through 115. He begins with a denial. Now, if you were to look at a well-written statement of faith, sometimes they're ordered according to affirmations and denials. A statement of faith is an on-record statement of conviction. Or if someone agrees with the statement of faith, it's kind of a vow or a disclosure of their belief and their, uh, what they profess, what they know to be true. And in a statement of faith, often you'll have two elements. It would be a, a denial and an affirmation. So I deny this, which is opposed to the Word of God, while I affirm the following. This is a bit like the format of these first three verses. There's a very clear distinction, discrimination. There's a very clear differentiation between the wicked and the righteous. And the psalmist, in very strong language, draws these lines. He says in 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. In his denial, he first calls out in this stanza, double-mindedness. Double-mindedness, what does that mean? Well, in a a similar term might be self-contradictory. So a person who is of two minds holds two things at once that cannot be reconciled. Whereas they might say one thing and one day there's something else that they hold that contradicts what they say. The scriptures go on to explain in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 19, that men are without excuse and they have clearly access to the truth in both conscience the law of God written on their heart in creation, the testimony and the evidence of the Lord, His nature and character around them. So though they have access in conscience and creation to the obvious knowledge of God, yet they proceed to suppress His truth in unrighteousness. What is this? This is double-mindedness. This is the self-contradictory nature of sinners who stand as rebels before their Lord. A particular example in Scripture came to us last week from the testimony of Jude. Jude recounting Balaam. What was it about Balaam that made him so wicked? What was the nature of Balaam's error? We chronicled that a bit from Numbers 23 all the way through 25. I believe those chapters record the circumstances. And in that passage, there are four discourses at least where Balaam, almost in spite of himself, and certainly in spite of the will of the king who hired him, Balak, pronounces blessings and prophecies that extol God's purposes through Jacob and his descendants. 
A star will rise out of Jacob. Salvation will come. It reads just like the rest of the prophets. And with each, as we noted last week, discourse that Balaam, this a compromised prophet, prophet, proclaims in spite of himself, the culpability of his own heart intentions arises. Balaam was a double-minded man, though he knew full well and testified to that in these discourses that God had blessed and prospered these people for a reason and that all the world would see eventually the testimony of his, of his purposes through this covenant people. Nevertheless, he was double-minded and in his greed, he conspired with Balak against the purposes of God. And he inspired and tempted and came up with this scheme to draw the people away from their commitment to the Lord so that the Lord might bring judgment upon them and he could get his paycheck from the king. What is this? This is double-mindedness. This is the self-contradictory position of the sinner. These are the mixed motives of the heart. This is the self-incrimination of the unbeliever. While he knows full well that he is without excuse, nevertheless, he doubles down in his sin. And so these are the moments, and as I say, in trials of fire, and when the intensity of certain situation, situations dials up the heat, these things become more apparent. More apparent in our own lives, self-contradictory positions, where we see ourselves in double mind in some way, and therefore we know what to repent of, so that our life comes more in conformity to the Lord. In society, we see often contradictions when the heat is dialed up. And what is the purpose of this? Well, that that dross might be removed, and that the Lord might separate and purify. As we continue to mark a few examples of this double-mindedness, we note that those generally who partake and of in in take advantage, if you will, of the natural resources of this world, yet deny its creator, they are a classic example of the double-minded. Um, I thought of a particular example even this last week. Um, the NFL, which is like holds the attention of culture quite a bit, you know, professional sports, particularly football, captures the imagination and the affections and basically people rally behind their teams. Well, there was a sort of tragic event that happened in a game recently where a safety for the Buffalo Bills had a cardiac arrest moment on the field. And it was more, uh, I think the most interesting thing for me to behold in that moment is how people reacted. It came to a point where there was an anchor on ESPN who began to pray live on air that this uh, uh, Damar Hamlin would recover from this tragic injury. And I, th I thought about that, and I even listened to a podcast, some unbelievers the same week, and they said, did it take this moment in the NFL to bring God back into America? And it's interesting because to some degree, there were prayers and there were people admitting that they were powerless to help in this circumstance. So in this moment of desperation, it seemed like there was at least a unified cry that there is a power above and over us that we must appeal to because otherwise this man might tragically die. All that is right and good as far as it goes, but you can't help but think, I wonder what sort of entertainment will be procured for the Super Bowl halftime show coming up. Will it demonstrate the double-mindedness of our culture? We're in a crisis when the heat of trial is turned up, we cry out to God, but then when things settle down and he gives us a bit of reprieve from our trials or the immediate you know, danger as lessened in our minds, we turn to our self-indulgent sin and celebrating that which he hates. 
You see, God can turn up the temperature, even in our culture, to reveal the dross of our own sin. It should be a prayer for ourselves individually and for our culture at large that God would use the fiery trials uh, and even a reminder, a painful reminder through a tragedy and death of how frail and fragile life is and that we don't know if we have tomorrow. That Pray that, that as that temperature and that awareness is turned up, that the idea that we can just sin with impunity or make our own way or pretend that there isn't a heaven to gain and a hell to shun is ridiculous and foolish and to repent. Thus, and keeping these things in mind, we can better understand the resolution that the psalmist makes. I commit, he says, I hate the double-minded, he says, in fact. And in this is a commitment to keep his priorities in place to keep the distinctions and to discriminate between that which God hates and that which God loves and hold his own affections accountable to the difference. Whereas he hates the double-minded, he goes on to say, I love your law. So the denial, the affirmation, the law of the Lord. The psalmist, whereas he denies the self-contradictory nature of sin and the double-mindedness of unbelief and rebellion, on the other side, he affirms the things that are lovely, and to be pursued and embraced and to, be, uh, and to consider in our devotion and our attention and our obedience, the consistency of our life, our worldview, our, our, our outlook and our conviction, convictions should be shaped around the word of God. He says, I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Again, this distinction, depart from me, you evildoers, evil that I may keep the commandments of my God. Whereas he denies the double-minded, what does the psalmist affirm? He affirms the law and the word of God, two references, as his hiding place, his shield, and his hope. These references bring up this need, this desperate uh, dependency of the human being for sources of reassurance of identity and encouragement. What will carry me through? You know, people often encourage one another in culture, broadly speaking, it will be okay, you will get through. Tomorrow's a new day. You know, um, trust that things will improve. The real question is, what is the basis of that assurance? What is the basis of that hope built upon? And the psalmist says, the only firm foundation is the law of God, is the word of God, his commandments, promises, statutes, testimonies, and judgments. And so in his resolution, he wants to be careful to distinguish between the two in his own soul, to deny, that is to say, false sources of, or false hiding places, false sources of hope, false shields, and then instead to affirm in his resolution that his identity, his security, his assurance, and his escape are in the Lord alone. The law and word of God is the only secure foundation when the fiery trial is present. I referenced Maoist China and the struggle sessions, the psychology of totalism that, uh, that Jay Lifton's work chronicles. There was another example that came to mind, particularly with this verse referencing the hiding place. I don't know if you've read Corey Ten Boom's famous work chronicling their attempts to save the oppressed during Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. But in the house of the Ten Booms, they had a small hidden room 
And in that room, they tried to preserve the life of those who are threatened by the regime of tyrants. Her book, The Hiding Place, chronicles these events. She recorded the testimony in that work of her elderly father, uh, Casper Ten Boom. Casper became the subject of investigation and was arrested when he became suspect that he was uh, hiding those who are enemies of the state, Nazi regime. When he was held in prison on account of his actions, Corey records him reciting this very verse by heart. That is to say, her father found a sufficient source of confidence and trust in escape for his own soul, even though he would soon die for his work on the Lord's behalf, seeking to rescue those who were threatened by this wicked regime. He cried out in his hour of incarceration, O Lord, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. In the short term, I'm sure his captors, the guards of that prison cell, if they heard him recite that aloud, might have jeered and mocked and ridiculed and spurned his testimony of confidence. But in the end, as history continues to record the sovereignty of God, even in and through fiery trials, little did those captors know that their regime would fall and in the end, some 35 million copies of this book would be sold and read and treasured and marveled at all over the world. And among those copies, uh, and in the, that book would be the record of a man who is pitiful and as helpless as he might have appeared in the moment, cried out to Jesus Christ as his hiding place. And the testimony of his confidence now has inspired millions and millions and millions of readers. In the short term, it is hard to sometimes have the faith to see how God will use your resolve in the fiery trial. We can trust looking from the perspectives of Scripture and even the evidence of God's work in history that His purposes are much bigger than you could ever engineer or imagine, infinitely more so. And this should give us great hope and encouragement if we feel the temperature of our own experience rising. The Lord is our hiding place, and He is a sufficient one indeed. He denies, so the psalmist denies the double-mindedness of the evildoers. He affirms the Lord is His confidence and security, and then he makes a bold rejection statement. He takes authority and confronts and rebukes the evil unbeliever, as it were, in verse 115, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. This is a repudiation. This is a confrontational, assertive front against that which stands in the way of obedience to God and His commandments. The psalmist models this truth and principle that there is a time for us to take a stand and with assertiveness and confidence and a bold resolve to oppose the un, the. Uh, those who stand against the will of God in our own lives and to say, along with the early apostles, Acts 5, 29, you must decide what you will do, but we must obey God rather than man. Now, internally, um, we face a war as well. And we're called to aggressively assert our, uh, the Lord, our, our resolution to follow the Lord as against the temptation and the, the, and the sin that would distract us. So killing sin internally is an application of this as well. 
Depart from me, you evil-doing thought. Depart from me, you temptation to fall into sin. Depart from me, Satan. Is this not what Jesus did in confessing the scriptures, modeling the very approach that the psalmist took on Psalm 119? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So depart from me, you evildoer. But externally, there are times in life where this conviction needs to be on our lips and our resolve as well much like the apostles standing before those false authorities and religious leaders and political um, whatever agents who said, you know, you've got to stop proclaiming Jesus Christ. This is against the interests of the state, and this is blasphemy according to our understanding of Judaism. And they say in so many words, we must follow God rather than men. Depart from me, you evildoers. And this testimony throughout the scriptures became codified in statements of faith and commentaries later. And those who have understood what the psalmist says have rightly written that we are to obey. When are we to obey the governing authorities and when are we to disobey? Well, so long as they forbid what God requires or require what God forbids, we are to take the resolution and the strong assertive uh, authority of the psalmist and say, depart from me, evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Whatever stands in the way of obedience to the Lord of God is by definition our enemy, be that an external or internal foe. And so the psalmist models for us uh, surviving the difficulties of this life with this kind of resolution and our denials, our affirmations, and our bold rejection of the enemies of the Lord and our souls, we are to stand. Second major point. Surviving fiery trials according to the word of God, the psalmist models petitions. And this would be that bowing posture before the Lord. Beseeching him on behalf of his steadfast love and his mercy and grace. There's a parallel here. Twice in 16 and 17, he cries out, uphold me and hold me up. What does this imply? I'm too weak to stand on my own. I do not have the strength in my own self and my own resolution and willpower to stand and to walk. You must hold me up. You are my strength and hope. You are my security and assurance. It is you upon which I depend. Uphold me, verse 116. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Spiritually, if we conceive of like a body, um, a body has a skeleton, which is the reinforcing structure that allows a person to walk and to negotiate life and gravity and, you know, everything and so forth. And similarly, if we see our spiritual man as having a structure, there's a skeleton that allows us to stand, to be functional and enduring through difficulties and trials. And this skeletal structure, if you will, is the promise and the statutes of the Lord. It's this assurance of what he has spoken and a confidence in his word that allows us to be held up, that allows us to be rigid and to be, have a, a confident stature and to be able to walk in the midst of difficulty. So the psalmist cries out for this. Bowing before the Lord, he prays for three things, life, dignity, and safety. 116, uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. So give me life. Let me live. Now here, 
as everyone is familiar with the difficulties and the dangers of life. Nevertheless, we understand there's sort of a default posture of faith, that the Lord has given me the duty, so long as there's breath in my lungs, to proclaim his glory. And it rightly should be the desire of every believer not to give up, not to uh, give in to the despair of some nihilistic meaninglessness or everyone dies, so what is life worth? But instead, to the bitter end, to take advantage of every waking breath to proclaim the Lord his truth and his glory. We should pray accordingly to his covenant promise. And each believer to his final day, it should remain our earnest plea to live as unto the Lord. All the while, reassured of eternal life, come what may. There's a little bit of a paradox here. We know that when we die, there is this promise of eternal life. And death for the believer is not the same. It's eternally different than death, that enemy that the unbeliever faces. We know that Jesus Christ has defeated the last enemy. Nevertheless, death is an enemy. And so in this time, in this intermediate phase, when God has given us this life and this body, though failing and frail and finite, such as it is, it should be our earnest petition and plea that the Lord might grant us the ability to take advantage of every gracious gift, every beat of our heart, every breath in our lungs to glorify and to live for him. And this is why we pray for healing. This is why we pray for fullness of life, even for those within our own body. This is why we stood as a church believing that the Lord would raise Moses up when he was facing life-threatening health situation last year. And this is what we rejoice in when God answers our prayer and raises him back up, gives him healing. And there are others in our church right now who we are praying for. And we do so according to the psalmist. We pray, Lord, uphold my brother, my sister, who is struggling with a health condition or otherwise right now. Lift them up, hold them up. May your promise and statutes, may the assurance of their covenant that you will give them the life and the ability, the breath and the strength necessary to glorify you until you call them home, lift them up according to your promise that they might live. This is a godly petition. And we know that there are times when God calls us home. And then we realize that our prayer has been answered beyond any provisional means in between. As God welcomes the believer through the door of death into his presence forever, this is the ultimate answer to our petition. He has given us, through this means, eternal life. But in the here and now, we pray that God may grant us grace to live for his glory. We also pray for dignity, but not as the world might wish it. We pray that God would not shame us in our hope, but as we hope in him, that his testimony would go forth in answers to our prayer. The psalmist says, 116b, let me not be put to shame in my hope. So if you have stated your claim and you have made your resolution and your petition that the Lord is my healer, the Lord is my provider, the Lord is my savior, the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my confidence, whom have I to fear? That is, the Lord answers that prayer, he is glorified. The psalmist is getting on record for his enemies, for all who would listen, presumably for his family, for all who sing this song, for all who hear his statements of faith, that he trusts in the Lord. 
And therefore, he asked that his prayer would be answered so that his trust in the Lord would be vindicated and he would not be put to shame in his hope. Whatever you place your hope in, if you have a turn of events in your favor, then what you've placed your hope in gets the credit for that change, gets the credit, so to speak. So for those who pray to a false god, if there's some answer, they might give glory to that false god. Of course, all this is deception. It is the Lord alone who deserves the credit. But we should align our prayers like the psalmist does, clearly and emphatically and unequivocally with the Lord, so that when the Lord answers, it is clear to others that we've placed our hope in Him. And therefore, in our dignity, as we pray, Uh, that we would not be put to shame. It is also the Lord's glory which we stand. If our dignity is tied to the glory of the Lord, then it's a win-win when prayers are answered. And then finally, he prays for safety, life, dignity, safety, if you will. Verse 118, you spurn all who go astray from your statute. Excuse me, 117. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. The psalmist prays for safety. But not like modern man prays or works for safety. Safety, I suggest, is an absolute obsession in our culture today. But you will notice that people obsess themselves and governments promise and institutions arrange themselves and people seek through any means necessary to secure confidence in the future for safety according to the flesh. Safety according to the flesh is an obsession. It's an idol in our culture today. You know, the Food and Drug Administration presumes to secure and to guarantee the safety of our food supply. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, presumes to assure us the safety of of our medicine and our health policies. You know, the government builds up their uh, resources and their warfare uh, state and so forth. The chariots and horses of the modern era to guarantee the safety of those who might oppress us. By in, in, through international means and you know war and so forth, and so the safety or assurance co- insurance companies all over the place uh, collectivize the risk of certain life activities to ensure the safety of our bank account if we should uh, you know encounter tragedy and so on and so forth. We're people that are obsessed with safety and seek it and all these means. It's an obsession, but you will notice it also betrays an idolatry and a deception that is so prevalent in our day today. There is little regard for the safety of the soul. Isn't it a gross irony that in a society that is so obsessed with the safety of the individual, we open up our souls to be ravaged by the, ravaged by the enemy, to be overrun and destroyed and violated by that which can do way more damage, eternal damage. Jesus says, and our Uh, society stands in direct contradiction to this truth. And Matthew 28, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and the soul and send them both to hell. You know, the impressionable uh, consciousness of our little ones and children, if we submit them to the institutions and the worldview of our day and the policies and intentions of so many that seek to shape the consciousness of the next generation, They will be warped and twisted beyond recognition in many cases. And we're already living with the fallout of these kinds of things. 
You know, one thinks of hormone replacement therapy and this absolute unfettered, you know, welcoming of alternate identities against the created order. And they introduce these ideas at early and earlier ages during the vulnerable stages of development in the human mind and the experience of young people. And what does this do? It opens up the soul to be absolutely overrun and violated by the evil and wicked forces of our society. And so it's an irony. We're so obsessed with safety that we open ourselves up to the worst and most dangerous influences that one might imagine. Where can we turn to uh, correct these issues? And where can we turn to get our perspective back in line? We must turn to the law, the word, the commandments, the promise, the statutes, the testimonies, and the judgments of the Lord both to recognize what's dangerous and to assure our own safety. The fool secures, you know, this part. Imagine building a wall around your city, and all it consists of is one tower. You know, but then the enemy comes, and you're vulnerable, to, and, and, and you're vulnerable in every other location. Or imagine building a wall around the city, and all you care about is one section. This is the way we live in our society. The Lord tells us and the scriptures proclaim to us the true danger, the soul, and its protection is of paramount importance. And the body as well, we can trust the Lord to provide and protect us from and our finances and things like that. However, the scriptures reorder our priorities to recognize that they are indeed secondary. So this perspective changes when we we bring our petitions to the Lord in light of his word. And as we do so, we cry to him, Lord, uphold us by your promises and your statutes. Lord, hold us up so that our life, our dignity, and our safety are assured according to your means against the true dangers that you see in your omniscient, uh, glorious um, ability, and so forth. So surviving fiery trials according to the word of God, a psalmist models, resolutions, petitions, and we close by noting his professions, his confession, his statements of faith, if you will. Verse 118 through 120, the uh, psalmic portion concludes with the author singing, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. In these professions, the psalmist first upholds in, in here, as he rises to testify of the Lord in his character, he recognizes that the Lord condemns his enemies. He says in verse 118, You spurn all who go astray from your statues. The psalmist in this section affirms the judgments of God, that the Lord uses fiery trials to make a separation and deal with his enemies. And those who are his enemies, those who go astray from his statutes, and care nothing of his authority, as expressed in his holy word, they are spurned. What does spurn mean? Well, it's to make light of. It's to toss aside. It's to tread underfoot. Imagine, you know, litter that is discarded in the ditch, and as each car passes, a wrapper from a burger blows. And like, imagine, you know, a crowd leaving a public event, and what's left behind, your empty cups, and your cigarette butts and, you know, whatever, discarded pieces, paraphernalia and papers and so forth. The attitude of that crowd to uh, these things, their trash, that's they, uh, that is the idea in, encapsulated in this word to spurn. 
It is a rejection and a condemnation to make light of and disregard because what the claim, what the enemy claimed to be has been shown in time to be foolish, ridiculous. <clears throat> and so here, if I were to illustrate this, perhaps with time, I don't know that we have time to turn there, but we might turn to Daniel chapter 3. This is my favorite example of a fiery trial. And in the end, how when the Lord turns up the heat, like who is saved and who is spurned. So as you recall, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel, they refuse. They take a strong stand. They reject the enemy of God's statutes in spite of the intense cultural pressure that they face, in spite of, the, um, their, in spite of the, their uh, exile status in this powerful and unbelieving regime. Well, they take a stand. And so the enemy of God and his people, the king, is very upset. And he commands that the furnace, the instrument of his own judgment and condemnation for those who uh, presume to break his law, be turned up seven times. And as the heat is turned up and the captors and the, and the uh, three friends of Daniel approach the fiery furnace, kids, what happens to the guards? What happens to the guards? They get close to the furnace and before they even get there, that's right, the fire consumes them. But what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do they die by fire? No. Is there three people in the fire, you guys? Do you remember? Four. Four. And the fourth was who? An angel, An angel or Jesus, perhaps? The fourth, the king confessed, appeared to be the son of the gods. And this is incredible. What we see here is that in Christ and through Christ was true uh, life, dignity, and safety assured for Daniel and his three friends. What happened as this fiery trial, uh, the, the dial of the intensity was turned up and they approached the furnace. No doubt, the guards are like, oh yeah, um, you know, they with all the confidence in line with the king's desires and demands, it's like three people against this whole, you know, uh, regime. And, and so, but soon their uh, confidence in the king and where they stood uh, melted very quickly as they themselves became a pool in front of this intense heat. Meanwhile, because Christ was with them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survived. The Lord in his, in his day of reckoning, and in his judgments will have the final word. And in that day, he will spurn all who go astray from his judgments, and their cunning will be shown to be in vain. The cunning of the king, taking the law, using the law to his advantage by saying, you must, under penalty of death and judgment, worship me instead of anyone else. That cunning was in vain. After the Lord preserved these three friends, he rushed to change that law, and he confessed the sovereignty of one over him, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. What is dross? We mentioned before, it's the impurity of metal that is separated when the intensity is turned up. Therefore, I love your testimonies. As the intensity of trial turns up, what will be preserved? That which is of the Lord and according to Him. What will be skimmed off and removed? That's the impurities and the dross. The scriptures even talk about our works subject to this kind of trial. In uh, 1 Corinthians at the beginning there, there's a separation. And uh, those works that we've done for the Lord, according to the Spirit, for His glory, they are submitted to trial by fire and they survive as gold and precious stones, as it were. First Corinthians uh, 13, 13 through 15, I believe, is uh, the passage there. But the, those of wood, hay, and stubble, 
not according to the Lord, are burned. Isaiah 22, Isaiah 1, 22 through 28, speaks in similar language to the dross as impurity and uses this same illustration and analogy of the intensity brought up to separate the righteous from the wicked, the good from the evil, the dross from the pure gold. There are uh, parables of separation all throughout the scriptures in Matthew 13 and 25. You know, the instrument of God's will and purposes throws the wheat up into the air. The wind blows and the chaff is separated from the wheat. Um, There's another parable of separation, couple that deal with the final day of God's judgment, where the wheat and tares are gathered together, the tares are separated from the wheat, and then they are burned with unquenchable fire. And then there's the final day when those, everyone who's lived stands before the Lord and His power and authority to judge, and they will thus recognize His glory, authority, His majesty, and His dominion as He separates the sheep from the goats. Where will you be on that day? Well, if you stand with the Lord, if you trust Jesus Christ, then you find that your hiding place is being in Christ. What is the hiding place when God's judgments come? You must be in Christ. And this is the message of Psalm 119, the 15th stanza. In closing, let me bring up and uh, just one further reference or one corresponding reference from Hebrews 12. Gene read the first portion of this as our worship text. But as we continue to read, we find the author recording this in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us transition in prayer and close with a worship song in line with what we have heard today. Father, we thank you as we acknowledge you in the fullness of your character. We have reason to fear if we stand in the flesh and in our sin but reason to rejoice, recognizing that our hiding place is in Christ. Lord, I pray that though there may be a shaking in our day, in our personal lives, or in the age in which we live, we can be grateful and thank you that as we bring our petitions before you, it is not in vain, but we, in fact, through Christ, have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In light of these truths, Lord, the fearfulness of your judgments uh, without a sacrifice, but, Lord Jesus, the thankfulness of our assurance and hope given Christ, our Savior and Lord, I pray that our worship would be acceptable to you, that you would move us to reverence and awe, recognizing that, yes, you are a consuming fire, but that fire has purpose to purify us who are in you and to deal with your enemies fully and finally on that day. Grant us grace to live in light of these truths as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of our call. In Jesus' name, amen.